The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to a Slate spoiler special on Cinderella, the live action version of the classic fairy tale from Disney, directed by Kenneth Branagh and starring Lily James as the titular princess-to-be. I am Dan Coyce. I'm an editor at Slate, and I'm here in Slate's DC Recording Studio. And I am joined by Katie Waldman, who wrote Slate's review of Cinderella. Hey, Katie. Hey, Dan. So we uh, will talk about a lot of things in the spoiler special, including the different ways that the that this new movie treats the Cinderella myth, about the the aspects of kindness and sincerity that are reflected in the character of Cinderella, and also about whether the uh, new looks of the fairy godmother and the wicked stepmother and stepsisters really work for us. Um, And of course, as in all spoiler specials, we will be spoiling what happens in the story, which... The shoe fits, Dan. The shoe fits. (laughs) She becomes a princess. Um, I also want to uh, spoil a little bit the the short that appears before Cinderella, Frozen Fever, mostly because I hate it. Um, But let's start, Katie, um, with – let's touch a little bit on the differences between this live action – version of Cinderella and the more familiar tales from many listeners on childhoods, the Cinderella of 1950s, uh, the Disney version, and then, you know, of course, the Whitney Houston Cinderella um, and all the other Cinderellas we know. But do you want to go into a little bit the way this the way this story unfolds and the way it's different from other various versions of that Cinderella tale? Sure. I mean, I think one big difference is that the character of Cinderella here is less passive than in the 1950s cartoon. You see her riding bareback in the forest. She is sort of living her life. She has her value system and she is finding joy and playing with her animals. And she doesn't seem like this put upon wretch who is just sadly mopping because she doesn't know what else to do with herself. Like she sees that the house needs to be maintained. And so she does that. So I I think that already she's sort of a more fully fleshed out character um, in this movie. I can't remember actually in the cartoon whether the prince and Cinderella meet before the ball or if he's just swept off his feet. He's just swept off his feet. Oh, well, that's a big difference, right? So she doesn't even know in this movie that he is the prince when they first meet. So she is perhaps relieved of being that kind of classist person who wants to marry the prince. So let's set that up. So she she's riding bareback through the woods um, in a fit of 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 something. I, guess, of, I can't even. I she mean, wants she's freedom. Too nice. Like she's angry, but not really. She just thinks, well, I guess I'll blow off some steam on this right. horseback ride. Right. So she's out riding in the woods, and simultaneously, the prince is out there with his coterie uh, hunting, and she sees a stag in the forest and sends the deer on its way before the prince and, and his group can hunt it down. And then the prince himself rides in, and he describes himself not as a prince, um, but as Kit. Kit, Kit the, the apprentice. apprentice, yes, and he, wink, she, wink, nudge, nudge. Right, she he's doesn't under she doesn't recognize him. She doesn't know he's a prince. He's uh, amused to discover that she doesn't know who he is. Um, and they, you know, they meet cute. She tells him that she doesn't think he ought to be hunting, and just because everyone hunts, just because that's the way things are, doesn't mean that that's 
that's what's right, she tells him. And he is taken with her because of her lovely flaxen locks, but also seemingly because of her willingness to flout convention, something that we learn in scenes with Kit the prince and his father the king later is something he's really concerned about. He's not that interested in making a good marriage, in marrying whoever it is that his father will want him to marry for the sake of the kingdom. So Kit admires that in her, and he he finds something to love in that. And so that first meeting sets them up as a couple who's obviously who seems to us to be meant for each other in some way in this kingdom. And it, you're right that it does it changes her motivations a little bit. It makes her desire to to be connected with him less about saving herself from this life of toil and more about finding a real match. Mm-hmm. Um, it also means that the her her designs on going to the ball itself are much less about well I want to meet a prince the same as everyone else and more about I want to have this experience uh you know why can't I go to the ball too why can't yeah. I have fun for a night and she explicitly says I want to see Kit the apprentice oh, which right 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 it's fascinating too because I think that these characters are a lot more specific than like the usual archetypal prince charming and disney princess like she does not want to go see the prince she wants to go see Kit right a boy um, she met who she thinks is nice right right um, there's a really great uh, essay this morning, m- Friday morning, um, on NPR's Monkey See blog by Linda Holmes about the about a great sort of overview of all the different Cinderella stories that there have been. Um, and she quotes this amazing line that I had forgotten from the 1950 cartoon. Oh, no, sorry, not from the cartoon, but from a, a later version, the musical, the live TV musical that aired with Julie Andrews, in which the prince actually says to Cinderella, whatever your name is, I love you. <laughs> But yes, the, so, so romantic. It is so romantic. But so the prince is a real character in this, in the sense that he is a human being we actually care about. And we see scenes with him that don't just revolve around Cinderella um, and him dancing with Cinderella and falling for Cinderella. We see him dealing with his father, who's right. played by Derek he's Jacobi. He's a son. Yeah. Right. He's a son struggling with his his birthright. He has a friend, a great friend, who uh, is played by Nanzo Ananzi. Yes, although, oh my gosh, the one, you have to do the black friend thing in, <laughs> I don't know, that just, that irritated me. Like, great, he's the moral center, he's the captain of the guard, I'm glad, but it did seem a little bit. I didn't think he was, like, dispensing traditional black friend wisdom. It just seemed like they lived in a kingdom where there are black people and white people. And I think it, it would be great to have a version of Cinderella where uh, where Cinderella was black or where the prince was black or the king was black. But I did think that having this character, sort of the, 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 the most fun, noble character outside of the prince be a black guy was like a nice touch and a nice moment of casting. And it harkened back, I thought, to... Kenneth Branagh's background in like modern Shakespeare, which is like the one place in either the theatrical world or in the film world where colorblind casting actually basically exists and is like the norm rather than the exception, right? That right. that in especially in the plays and movies that Kenneth Branagh has directed, he's taken real care to present worlds in which in which race uh, is essentially 
is not is not non-existent but doesn't matter as much because it wasn't an issue in those plays necessarily some exceptions obviously aside but so he casts black actors in roles that are not traditionally black and in a lot of shakespeare and so i like that there were black noble women in the court mm-hmm. that there were women of color among the princesses who come to the castle you know i like i think that that's a thing that you know that a lot of hollywood movies don't bother to do and they could do and kenneth Branagh just does it it's just the thing he does when he makes his movies okay you've convinced me and i guess- I guess I would also add that if there is going to be a genre in which a magical black friend is acceptable, it would probably be a fairy tale. Sure. Like that, maybe you actually do have a magical black friend. Sure, you've got but, a fairy godmother. Why right, not also a magical right. black friend? Um, oh, actually, let's go back a second because there isn't, I think, another difference between this and other various versions of this story, which is Cinderella's relationship with her parents, mm. which is very developed at the beginning of this movie um, in a way that you don't see it in other versions of the story. She has a loving and wonderful relationship with her parents. A lot is talked about the way they raise her, the morals they raise her with, and they give her one uh, motto, one mantra that she carries with her throughout life, which is... Have courage and be kind, Have Stan. Have courage and be kind, which is a great motto. Yeah. Now, when I was watching this movie, I got frustrated with her sometimes because I felt like having courage and being kind turned into making her like a doormat that was who is just stepped on all the time by this by her stepmother and her stepsisters after her father and her mother both die her mother dies of an illness and an unexplained fairy tale you look beautiful but you die anyway illness Mm -hmm. then her father remarries a stepmother and then he goes off traveling and then he dies on the road and so she's left with the stepmother, played by Kate Blanchett, and her stepsisters, who are played by Sophie McShera and Holiday Granger. And she continues this mantra throughout. But Katie, you made an argument in your review that I found pretty convincing that that I was looking at it the wrong way, that her kindness was not allowing herself to be walked on by these people, but an example of an, another example of courage, of moral fortitude. Yeah, well, Explain think, that to our listeners. Sure. So I think what this film does a really good job of showing is that kindness can be incredibly hard. Like it seems simple, um, but it's difficult and it's an active thing that you choose rather than something that you fall upon because the resources of strength or wisdom or, or, you know, cleverness aren't available to you. And so one scene I talked about uh, was when her neighbor comes to inform the household that the merchant father has died on the road. And um, we see that news hit Cinderella and she's devastated. And then she pulls herself together with incredible effort and says to the man, that must have been very difficult for you. Thank you. And then he leaves and she collapses against the door and it's very sad. Um, but just the effort that it took her to go outside of her grief and think of this other person and say it in sort of her direst moment, it seemed very heroic. Um, it seemed, it I think, um, was distinctive in that most people wouldn't do that. And so it set her apart. And I think a lot of characterizations of past Cinderella's um, have been, oh, she's sweet and dreamy and passive. And this is showing an active Cinderella choosing a value system and forcing herself to live it no matter what happens. And Right. And so she she feels a great responsibility toward the household and toward the promise she made her parents, which is the reason she gives for not just like ditching mm-hmm. these the stepsister and the stepmother when a, when a, she you know she like goes into town at one point and meets someone who used to work at the at their house and she just asks her like why don't you 
get the hell out of there. And she says she made a promise to her mother and her father, and she feels like she has to honor that promise. Uh, and I, I, you know, I feel convinced by that. I did feel frustrated by that character as I was watching the movie. But when you compare her to the other Cinderella's who have been, she so clearly is exerting a moral force throughout the movie in a way that they are not. Uh, that that seems like a real a real step forward, even if the story itself still is always going to have certain aspects of it that just feel like mildly distasteful to me. Um, right. Well, I think one thing is we're so used to stories in which like the demons lie within. And so we're more comfortable with maybe a heroine who is in whatever suffering place she needs to be in at the beginning of the story so that she can come out of it and we can have a happy ending right. because of her own issues. And so like this is a way of, I mean, evading that and and having her being kept down by external forces, which sort of makes you think, oh, well, why isn't she just throwing off those constraints? And instead, for a while, until she actually does throw them off, we need to see her living with them and sort of subverting them without entirely being free of them. Right. So that just felt like a necessity to me. Right. Um, let's talk about that, about the stepsisters and the stepmother. So the stepmother is played by Kate Blanchett, who is as always, impossibly glamorous and amazing mm-hmm. to to behold. She is a glory. She is a glory. There's a scene, I think I tweeted after the movie, that there's that scene right at the end of the movie when they, when she's coming down the stairs and they basically tell her, like, it's all over for you, mm-hmm. where she's wearing, like, this green dress and she's at the top of the stairs and she <laughs> throws her hand to her face and swoons. And I was like... And it really seemed like a shot that could have been in Gone with the Wind. Yeah. Like that sweeping staircase and that gown she was wearing and her incredible aura of otherworldliness. It felt like something from a movie made 70 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I also – I think she has the best single word line in any movie that I've seen this year, which is when um, the sort of nefarious court plotter um, – Stellan Starsgard as like the one guy in the kingdom who actually wants the kingdom to make – to like – thrive. Yes. Right. <laughs> the one person with political a uh, political mind. Right. Um he he is talking to her and they are trying to figure out how to twist uh Cinderella's uh lowly birth to their advantage and he says at one point, "Are you threatening me?" and she says, "Yes." Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, she is great. Yeah. Uh, she also is given, I thought, uh more of a backstory than in any version of Cinderella that I am that familiar with in the sense that she's given a number of credible motivations for why she is so awful. She had, she loved her first husband, the one who gave her her horrible, stupid daughters. She lost him. She marries Cinderella's father, not out of love, but because of feeling a real need to, to have a future for those daughters, those beautiful, stupid daughters. And she sees – we see her in a scene with the father and Cinderella talking about how much they both miss his first wife, Cinderella's mother. She sees the way that she is not accepted and loved in that household. She sees the way that Cinderella truly feels about her and her and her daughters and how she will never truly accept them as part of that family. And she responds to that in a obviously overwrought way and we are definitely meant to believe that she is at – heart wicked, but we also are given motivations for the ways that she acts. Now, you mm. you didn't think so. You thought that this was like, a, that this movie 
went against sort of a recent trend in movies of fully fleshing out the more wicked characters. Well, maybe I was that was my aspiration for the movie because I think you're right. There's sort of a generosity of spirit to the entire film that sort of obligated it to give even the worst characters some sort of credible motivation because, you know, no one's that bad. This is Cinderella. This is airiness and light and sweetness. But um, I did think that I enjoyed the character of Kate Blanchett's uh, stepmother most when we weren't trying to complicate her and give her, you know, make her react to overhearing this conversation. It's true that she is... I guess somewhat complex, but I think the best parts was when were when she was just deliciously vampy, um, and she didn't need a motivation. Um, I'm trying to think because I think that there were sort of two types of characters in this movie, and it wasn't quite good and evil, but there was sort of like the grandstanding, scenery chewing, like you want a godmother, you got a godmother characters. And then there were the sort of more expressive, quietly human uh, parents and daughters and sons um, who were, you know, Prince Charming or Kit and Cinderella. And so she definitely fell in the first category. Like she was not a realistic human being, I don't think. But she did exist in this movie where there were realistic human beings. And so maybe there was some creep there. It's interesting. Yeah, it was sort of like there were there were opera characters and drama characters. Yeah. You know, yeah. like the you're right that the fairy godmother is played bigger than life. And uh, Kate Blanchett is played bigger than life and so are her daughters. And then there are other characters who are meant to appear to us to be re- like relatable human beings like the prince, like Cinderella, like the people who worked in the household who Cinderella befriended, like the prince's best friend, mm-hmm. like the king. They are all meant to have real conversations with each other that are driven by real motivations and 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 real affection. And then they're like not even really opera characters, but I guess sort of cartoon Character characters. Characters, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. like she was cartoonish. And so to me, those – Efforts to give her motivations just felt like half-baked a little Mm. bit because I thought that I understood the terms of this movie, which is like you got your (laughs) cartoons and then you got your complicated, deep, good characters. And I thought that was also really interesting that all the complexity and sort of the moral and intellectual focus of character painting was like going towards the good guys because we normally don't get that. Normally we got Maleficent who is like, oh my gosh, so so much more compelling than you thought. Um, Right. Well, that's the recent trend. Trend, especially in updating fairy tale movies or fairy tale stories, uh, it arguably starts with Into the Woods mm. in the, in uh, in the late '80s. But it definitely the, the idea that the way to explore an archetypal story is to explore the the character you once thought was a one dimensional bad guy, like Wicked, uh, you mm-hmm. know, or uh, the examples that you gave in your review, like Maleficent or like Snow White and the Huntsman. Those are movies that are designed to make you think in a different way about that character you once thought of as just the the laughing villain in the corner. And and it's true that this movie goes a different direction than that, but it is also true. You so you in comparing it to those kinds of movies felt like, well, those glances that they make in trying to give a little motivation to the villain feel half-hearted. Mm-hmm. I instead was comparing it, I think, to the original Cinderella, mm-hmm. where these characters, the stepmother and the stepsisters, felt miles more human 
than those characters, in part because of the sort of touches of motivation they gave them, but in part also because they were played by really good actresses. Yes. Even the cartoony stepsisters are played by really good actresses who bring those characters to life and make you feel a little bit sorry and sad for their foolishness in the in the heat of those moments. Even as they're awful to Cinderella, you you know, oh well, they are not they are not going to be happy. These cartoon characters, you feel a little bit for them because of the way they're played. And Kate Blanchett is so amazing in general that it is impossible for me to not like feel an emotional connection to any character she's playing, no matter how much of a a vampy evil witch yeah. she sort well, of is I presented think, as. In I get in this weird place with Kate Blanchett and actresses like her, where I'm just like so grateful for how good a job she's doing entertaining me mm-hmm. that I'm like totally behind her character. Like I want her to win because thank you, I like watching you right. um, be horrible. Right. Your reward for being so great is that I'll be on your side. Yeah. Even though that goes against everything Deal. I believe in. Yeah. So let's talk about the big the ball, the trip home and then the uh the the conclusion of this movie, the glass slipper fitting, um, they get this movie finally gives an answer to a question that I had wondered my whole childhood, which is how it could it possibly be true that no one in the kingdom has the same size feet as Cinderella? <laughs> I've always wondered that. It seemed very unlikely. Like, wouldn't they maybe, even if it was just that she had little tiny feet, mm-hmm. wouldn't they find like some 15 year old who also had little right. tiny feet? And is she just like really short too? Like, isn't there supposed to be some correlation between foot size and height? Like, is right. Cinderella the shortest person in or the kingdom? Or if not, does she have feet so tiny that she would just fall over all the time right. because they can't properly support her weight? So, this yeah. movie answers that when the fairy godmother, played by Helena Bottom Carter, gives her the shoes, she basically does some magic thing with them and tells her these shoes will only fit you. Oh, mm-hmm. and also they're going to be super comfortable, so don't sweat that they're made out of glass. That was that was a nice touch. That was a nice touch, but that finally answered that question. So we then sort of see that even women with regular feet, with normal smallish sized feet, like the two stepsisters who are played by small actresses who presumably also have small feet, mm-hmm. they cannot fit their shoes in them because the shoe itself is enchanted to only fit Cinderella. I thought that was a great solution to this problem that has plagued the back of my mind every time I've heard this story, I guess since I was born. I am so happy for you. That never even occurred to me. And I'm so <laughs> glad that they were able to to fix that vexation. Good job, Chris White, who wrote the screenplay. For <laughs> uh, Apparently, you looked into childhood me's soul and answered the one question I asked. But so she goes to the ball. The prince is trying to be set up at this ball by with princesses from other kingdoms. In fact, there's one that the Grand Duke, Stellan Skarsgård character, has his eye on that he has planned for the prince to marry. The dark-haired dark swan. Yes. There are so many tropes floating around this. Yes, there really yeah, are. That's great. Uh, and, and instead, Cinderella sweeps in late and catches his eye, and he takes his first dance with her and then they immediately ditch the ball yeah they take off they're gone they wander the castle they go into the secret garden of Mm. the prince's greatest desire that no one even knew that that apparently just has roses and a big ass swing yeah that's i mean that's what princes do with their free time right right? they They make secret secret gardens everyone knows that yeah uh, and then they they have a real, a real heart to heart. Also, there's a little foot play. Oh my gosh, that was crazy! Yeah, he like slips. He slips off the shoe. He slips on the shoe. She gasps. It's um, <laughs> erogenous foot moments. It was really. Yeah. It was like Quentin Tarantino directed that specific <laughs> section of the movie. It was quite. It was like a little weirdly erotic in a way that made me, I think, pleasurably uncomfortable in a theater full of a bunch of children who didn't get it at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then. The clock strikes midnight. 
she the moment that the clock strikes midnight i thought was very interesting to me because she does not respond with panic or with despair that she might never see this prince again she responds with sort of with fear that she'll see that she is not worthy of uh this moment but also with a general sense of happiness at the experience that she has had she runs out but she stops for a minute minute to tell the king that his that his son is a really great guy yeah she keeps running she loses a shoe she doesn't care she gets in the coach it takes off there's a coach chase there's a coach (laughs) chase yeah where the where people are trying to catch her she escapes them the coach shrinks and she flies out but her but then she just sort of chuckles to herself and walks through the rain dreamily and and clearly we are meant to feel like she is satisfied with this whole experience that if the prince never came if she never married that guy, if she never saw Kit the Apprentice again, she would be she would still think that this was a wonderful night that she will remember forever. And I that might in the end be my favorite thing about this movie, mm. that we get a hint of an alternate version of the story where inspired by this evening, Cinderella then goes off and gets a job, uh, goes to college, uh, has a great life. That is in a way inspired by the courage and kindness she showed on this night that she saw that there was a future ahead for her. It turns out she ends up marrying the prince and becomes a, a queen and and lives royally and everyone else has to be sad about how they didn't get to have that life. But she could she could have done anything. She's Cinderella. Yeah, I actually I love that. And I think that there's sort of the seeds of that alternate fantasy planted even in the beginning when um, her mother dies and they grieve uh, the father and Ella. Um, And then the narrator says, but over time, grief turned to memory and memory is this beautiful thing. And it's sort of this um, this sanctuary for Ella um, as she's growing up. And it's what makes and or part of what makes her life rich and full. And I was also kind of stunned by her joyfulness, even as she's cleaning, even as she's being abused by her stepsisters and stepmother. Um, they she, lock her in the attic and she's like, what a great attic. There's so much solitude. There are no stepsisters. Right. Um, and I even felt that the the voiceover narration was kind of making fun of her at some points because, you know, it said, well, at least she was distracted from her sorrow by all these tasks. And you see her sort of like skipping around doing tasks. Um, <laughs> they provided plenty of distraction. Right. From her, from her horrible situation. Yeah. But in the end, we are meant to really feel like, well, that's the way to be. That's the way. That's the legitimate and wonderful way to live your life, and she is rewarded for it in the end. And I, I mean, I guess I like that as a message. I guess I really like it as a message for my children that if you cheerfully do the work that I tell you to do, <laughs> you will eventually be rewarded. That would be great if they took that to heart. I mean, that would be such a bold ending, though, if she didn't end up with the prince, if she went, if she demonstrated that she could do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that was another sort of like her omni cap- capability throughout this movie. Like she right, basically she learns does. to cook when there's no more cooks. Right. She does whatever the situation demands. And it was kind of amazing to me that this shy wallflower type was able to completely bewitch an entire ballroom. Where did she learn to dance like that? Like, how did she? She was totally magnetic. And you could see her sort of test driving the role of queen. Like, if she needed to be a queen and pull together the people and be sort of a figurehead, she could do it. She proved that at the dance. And so I think 
that would have been amazing if she had gone, shown that she had all the qualifications, and then gone off to college and done something completely different. Right. Well, so that is the Cinderella movie that is yet to be made. The story has been told a million different ways, but I don't think it's ever been told in a version where at the end, Cinderella demonstrates that, demonstrates her worth and nobility, and then just goes off to live her own life. And it does not end with a marriage or even with a pairing of any kind. So that's like the truly revolutionary version of Cinderella that Surely someone will make some time, and I'm sort of surprised that no one has. I hope that mm. our listeners email me to tell me that I'm wrong, that this version exists in some, you know, 80s underground film that I don't know about. But that would be like this is like a this isn't a revolutionary movie. This is a a a great modern spin that threads some very difficult needles mm. in the course of telling the story. But the truly revolutionary version would be the one, yes, as you say, where Cinderella at the end says, okay, I could have you, Prince, but and maybe I'll come back 15 years from now. But you know what? I'm good right now. I'm going to go to school and I'm going to become a lawyer. Yeah. The, I mean, it is interesting because I don't want to oversell how sort of um, – not subversive, but unstraightforward this movie is. Mm -hmm. I think it is absolutely Disney wrapped in a Disney bow. Like this is Disney cake and all kinds of Disney everything. Um, And it is probably exactly what a lot of people will expect from it. It's visually beautiful. um, It's traditional. It hits all the quotations of other Disney fairy tales. It is very much a fairy tale. Um, And I think that one of the lingering philosophical effects of that is that there's still a little bit of like feminine other directedness to it in that like her calling is not really to be the most badass Cinderella that she can be. It is to educate the other characters. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's sort of the shining example. She teaches the king how to be a dad. She drops truth bombs on her stepmother towards the end. Um, She herself learns the lessons of her parents and imparts them. And you imagine her as queen imparting them to the rest of the populace as well as to her husband. Um, And so there is a sense that like, Ultimately, her superpowers, her kindness and her courage are going to be channeled into the good of others um, or put to the use of others. Um, So, I mean, but there is a role for educators in life. So I'm not going to, like, come down too hard on the movie for that. But I do think you're right. It would have been even more revolutionary to have her, you know, Cinderella for for me and all for myself. Yeah. Or like or like how about a version where the like the prince dies and then she mm. just ends up ruling the kingdom awesomely and with great and terrible power. Like I'd watch yeah. that. Uh, all right. But overall, so I will say that going into this movie, I basically assumed that it would like be shitty, like super shitty. Uh, I assumed it would be a, like a bad knockoff of Cinderella, a story that I already find difficult and troubling and weird and that already has has had for much of my children's lives an unwholesome effect on their thoughts about marriage mm-hmm. and women and stuff like that. But instead, I came away pretty happy about it. And you did, too. Yeah, you you would recommend. Yes. Yeah. And I would also recommend a pairing. Um, I would watch this right after binging on The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Mm-hmm. Because I think that they are both these kind of irrepressible, cheerful, strong ladies um, who are, I don't know, who are steely in ways that you don't expect. Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt even has a Cinderella episode. Really? Yes. You maybe haven't gotten it. I think it's maybe episode 
eight, seven or eight. Oh yeah. Uh, that has a bunch of Cinderella jokes in it and even, even has Kimmy leaving her shoe on the stairs. Uh, huh. At one point it has a scene that accidentally perfectly mirrors a scene in this in which the prince says to Kimmy Schmidt, you don't know who I am? I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be a jerk. It's just that most people know who I am, which is yeah. basically exactly what Kit the Apprentice says to Cinderella in this movie. Uh, yes, I think that that's a great pairing, though I, I would not recommend showing Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt to your seven-year-old kid, mm-hmm. who is, the uh, in the end, probably the target audience for this version of Cinderella. All right, so we don't need to get into it, but can we agree that Frozen Fever is terrible? Ugh, jeez. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, I wrote about it in Slate. Um, we'll link to it on the on the browbeat post that we'll post this uh, spoiler special in. But it is truly a a over constructed, focus grouped into death. Everyone a little bit for everyone mess of a short uh, that pales in comparison. I hope to Frozen Two, which has just been announced, and it has like a not a good song. The song is not yeah, good. and it's like this terrible consumer advertisement for throwing a really extravagant, overindulgent birthday party for your kid, which is going to right. worm its way into his dreams, and right. no good can come of this at all. Right, like the only way to show your true affection for your sister is to throw her a gigantic birthday party, mm-hmm. uh, and if anything goes wrong, everything will be ruined and you'll be bereft. This is why you should be a twin because it's like you're on the hook. Let's let's both. Just let's both let this one pass. Uh, Spoken as a twin. All right. Thank you, Katie, for joining me for this discussion of Cinderella. Uh, We apologize to anyone who is spoiled unnecessarily by this uh, spoiler special. But we warned you. We warned you we were going to spoil every detail of this surprising story. Uh, For Slate.com, I am Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening. The spoiler special is produced by Chris Wade. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer and our executive producer is Andy Bowers. The Spoiler Special is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.